Welcome to Anthropites, the Anthropod series designed to make anthropology more digestible. In each short episode, we tackle a key concept, text or theme in anthropology, breaking it down into bite-sized chunks and discussing its applications in theory and in practice. I'm your host, Dr. Siobhan McGurk. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Mark Schuler, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Nonprofit and NGO Studies at Northern Illinois University and Affiliate Professor of Faculté d'Ethnologie at l'Universitat d'État d'Haïti. Our topic for discussion is non-governmental organizations, or NGOs, and their place in anthropology. Thank you for being with us today, Mark. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about the concept of NGOs or non-governmental organizations. Could you tell us what that term means? Yeah, so non-governmental organization was officially created in the UN Charter in 1945, Article 71, to give the status for observers and advisors for some of the UN units. Uh, but in the broader view, you know, non-governmental organizations have been around for quite a while. Um, Steve Tarnowitz talked about them being two centuries, so the first non-profit NGO was the anti-slavery movement. They could be thought of as do-gooders or activists, you know, the the people that give aid or people that give some sort of advocacy or organized efforts for social change. Um, So within those categories, you can get more specific, you know, development versus humanitarian aid, long-term versus short-term, non-government organizations, we've had non-profits, uh, third sector, uh, different keywords specify different specific emphases, but um, NGOs as a structure got really popular after the imposition of neoliberal economic policies in the mid-80s, early 90s, uh, certainly with the fall of the Berlin Wall, when there was no alternative to global capitalism. The World Bank, the IMF, the United Nations um, thought that it was better to give aid to to non-government organizations, to NGOs, as opposed to having bilateral aid to countries. And so almost overnight, the population of NGOs skyrocketed. Right, so would it be right in saying that uh, NGOs fill a gap where the government or governments are not providing uh, resources or services, and that, if I if I understand correctly, was encouraged by uh, the neoliberal moment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, gap NGOs play gap filler roles. Um, so, British economist John Maynard Keynes had this idea of bottom-up development that you raise the floor and spend your way to encourage economic growth and you have government protection. So in the United States, that's known as the New Deal, 33, since the Franklin Roosevelt administration. So the social welfare state um, has been codified in many national constitutions that the state owes, um, the state owes citizens rights to education, to health care, to housing, to services. And so during the, the neoliberal turn, the, the state governments were hollowed out. So states were no longer able to fulfill these contractual obligations, these rights to citizens, and NGOs stepped in. Uh, in many cases, like in Haiti, uh, NGOs also became the, um, the encouraged a brain drain of the public sector, because government workers were being paid a fraction of the cost that these short-term contracts that these, they can get of international NGOs. Um, so that happened in many places in the global south, um, not just Haiti. But um, so that there were gaps that were filled. But there were gaps that were created, too, by um, the public sector brain drain. Right. And when you say neoliberalization, could you, could you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like or what that means? Well, neoliberal is a new form of liberalism, a new form of capitalism. It was basically, uh, remember John Maynard Keynes said we should have a raise the floor 
uh, social democracy, you know, social welfare state, that um, University of Chicago economist Milton Friedman thought that these are distortions, that neoliberalism is based on the belief that the market economy is the best engine for growth and the most fair way of distributing those, that wealth. So government should get out of the business of protecting workers, of providing minimum wage, of providing services, that the, the private sector is the best engine for providing services. You know, these things should be marketized. So barriers to free trade were, were thrown down with the World Trade Organization. USAID in our contracting with other countries, we condition our aid with you know, certain things to liberalize the economy, sell off government services, sell off government companies. Um, so Margaret Thatcher's famous statement that there's no alternative, that you know, the market is the way, that to, way to go. Right, so we saw in the 1980s Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher and, and others pushing this uh, neoliberal agenda and uh, under the World Bank and IMF policies, this becoming really dominant through the 80s and 90s, and as you say, this kind of proliferation of uh, NGOs. So how have anthropologists engaged with uh, NGOs during that time, but you know, maybe even before, as you mm -hmm. say, it's got a long history? Anthropology um, has often played roles of gap fillers and it's an intermediary. So I, I think of NGOs as intermediaries. Uh, the term I use is that we glue the world system together. That once you destroy states, NGOs come to represent the points of contact between northern and southern countries, northern and southern economies, societies, etc. Um, so anthropologists had also been playing the role of in intermediaries. Um, the famous British anthropology examples in Africa about the colonial administrators. So NGOs are often thought of as neocolonialism that we're just replacing the formal structures with these informal private structures. And so anthropologists always play the roles as administrators and advisors to these NGOs. So anthropology self-critique mid-80s, questioning this, this, this value system. We were questioning our role in colonialism. And you have the ascendancy of the ideas of Michel Foucault. Uh, we're deconstructing, we're thinking about how power operates and how it proliferates. And so two thinkers, more than anyone, are kind of responsible for the creation of this idea of anthropology of NGOs. So James Ferguson and Arturo Escobar, critical anthropologists, uh, writing a Foucauldian, I mean, in a Foucauldian mode. Ferguson and Escobar were responsible for the critical approach to NGOs, even though they weren't specifically talking about NGOs, they were talking about development. And so then you see the, the idea that anthropologists, um, given a traditional bottom-up approach, are you know, subaltern attachments, or you know, at least positionings. But so there was a critical anthropological approach, um, also using Foucauldian ideas like governmentality. NGOs are privatizing the state. At this time, this is the height of the promotion of NGOs as, you know, the magic bullet to use um, Edwards and Hume's term, that they could do no wrong, that you could shoot it and it would, in any direction, it would magically hit its target. So the, the astronomically high expectations on NGOs corrupted that system, the, the funding corrupted that system. Uh, there was full throttle endorsements of NGOs from political science, from economists, from some sociologists. So anthropologists were the first discipline to challenge that the full throttle defense, and we were starting to ask critical questions. Uh, there was a special issue in 2001, Political Legal Anthropology Review, that explicitly set an agenda that we need to be no longer celebrating. And NGOs that are do-gooders, in fact, do things other than do good. And so we can ask what they do instead of just what they say they do. 
Right, so rather than take for granted that as a non-governmental organisation that these groups are intrinsically doing good, anthropologists have taken a more critical approach to say, actually, let's look more closely at what they are doing on, on the ground mm -hmm. and I suppose where the funding comes from and those kind of questions. Right, right, absolutely. So a research agenda within an, within an anthropological study of NGOs can talk about structures of power that are reproduced or created by NGOs, the neoliberal governmentality that is encouraged, the management structures, the exclusions, the externalities you can call them, but you know the, the actual relationships that are built. Um, so a couple of us, we were writing separately, but we discovered that David Lewis was writing about brokers and translators, I was writing about intermediaries, so really look at NGOs as NGOs, and not just the working in NGOs, but on NGOs. All of us who work in anthropology in the Global South, even the Global North, uh, there are things that you could call NGOs. So we either use them to study kinship, to study environment, to study religion, to study political systems, or we can explicitly examine those those conduits of action. Um, so we can look at NGOing, like the, the, the way that NGOs are doing their work. So scholarship got a little more critical. Um, Michael Barnett in, in political science um, started to challenge openly the goodness of NGOs, and so there's a there's space within political science for that critical interrogation. Sociology, qualitative international sociology, they're able to have that conversation. I would say we were lapped um, by critical ethnic studies scholars. So there's a conference that the Insight, the Women of Color Against Violence, held in Santa Barbara in 2004 that talked about the nonprofit industrial conflicts. The book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, is a radical critique that sort of defines the current radical critique, and that radical critique is how to prevent NGOization or becoming social movements, losing their vitality, their radical political structures, their radical vision, and in so doing they become bureaucratized, professionalized, and distant from the population, and more importantly accountable to the foundations, the you know, the one percent, the political structures, the governments. And so current social movements today, like Black Lives Matter, like the Dreamers, they are self-consciously not adopting an NGO model for their their community organizing because they don't want that kind of discipline and they don't want the hierarchy and division that comes with it. Right, so the, the funding bodies are kind of replicating government structures and saying these are the kind of things that we want you to do and these are the kind of things we don't want you to do, these are the kind of things we don't agree with you saying and, and that kind of thing. Right, absolutely. Uh, a lot of anthropologists rely on NGOs uh, to try and access different populations does that raise any tensions in terms of taking a critical approach while also working with or within NGO structures? Absolutely. Again, James Ferguson, he talked about um, development being anthropology's evil twin. And be maybe because I am a twin, I get really bugged when I hear that phrase, evil twin. But um, if you look at the kind of way of being to use produce from habitus, we are more like the NGOs that we are critiquing. Some of us need NGOs for, like you said, access. And so it puts us in a position where we we have to make these moral dilemmas. You know, we have to we have to make choices. Who is our intended audience? And why are we writing what we're writing? So do we always have to be looking at, oh, let's look at this organization, let's look at them as an example of how not to do things. It gets us in in this, this bind because our loyalties are challenged and they're, they're, they're in many cases in conflict. Are we loyal to 
the beneficiary population and what does that mean? Um, are we loyal to the NGO staff that we have a relationship with? So it presents a real question of, you know, do we go critical or do we just sort of not see certain things or deliberately choose to not write about them? I was told in my interview with the, one of the directors of the NGOs, uh, who I call Sobe Lavi in my book, uh, she told me something, and she said, you're not going to publish that. Like, she just, she, she explicitly said, we're not going to talk about our, the role of our, our NGO during the U.S.-sponsored coup against RSC in 1991. So, um, she did lay it out for me, and then she said, nope, you can't publish that. Um, and so I, you know, ethically or morally responsible to uphold that. And I did. Does that mean what we, that we can't also be critical? So there's a video that I made, co-produced, co-directed, Potomitam, it was the good NGO in my, in my dissertation study. And this, um, the good NGO turned out to be um, also a little bit bad in terms of like how they were treating these women who are the recipients of the beneficiary population. And, you know, making the film actually created quite a ripple within the organization to the point where, you know, they had to, like, publicly distance themselves from it because, uh, you know, it, it took a very critical stance on neoliberal globalization, etc. Um, and they didn't want to be associated with it, even though the, the idea for the film originated from the NGO itself, and the women wanted their stories told. So it's like, you know... Who am I responsible to? Who am I accountable to? You know, um, as a northern academic, I was still a graduate student, but I was outside that system. I could decide to let it all go, or I could have decided to just, like, have what my access dictate my actions and, and then just kowtow to the leadership and, and say, no, we're not going to do this film. But what about the women who's, who want their voices shared? So it really forced you to decide what side you want. And that's, I'm sure, not unique to me. Right, absolutely. I think that's very common. Um, there's always that question of if a, an organization is providing services, it has a, a client base or a member base or however you want to mm -hmm. uh, term it, and there's often tension between those two places. Mm -hmm. You've talked about this a little bit, but how else has the concept or maybe the object of NGOs influenced your own work, your own approach to anthropological research? I was a nonprofit worker before I was a graduate student. I got laid off. And that's why I went to grad school. So I had experience within community organizing in the Twin Cities, social justice organizations, the tenants union. So I would say that NGOing and activisting uh, actually influenced my anthropology. You know, it inspired what I would call anthropological imagination. But um, working on and in NGOs has shifted what I think uh, anthropology can do. Like, what what is like? Are we only there to pounce on? well-intentioned people making mistakes. There are people that are aiming for, like, the most radical critique and how you're cited in a journal, blah, 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 that, you know, the, the, the pithiest zinger quotes, and now with Twitter this has gone even more to that extreme. So working in and on NGOs has really sharpened my understanding of what power is and how it operates. It has inflected my understanding of concepts like coloniality, post-coloniality, that our NGOs, the contemporary inheritors of the world system, the, the intermediaries, the, like the British East Indian Company, the, the indirect rule that the British colonialism perfected, and or are they where the social change originates from? You know, anthropology as a discipline was created as an activist project. Papa Franz put us all together to critique contemporary racism, white supremacy, and xenophobia, uh, and, you know, anti-Semitism, 
And, you know, that's why you have archaeology and physical anthropology with cultural and, and linguistic anthropology. And right now, right, right now, I was going to swear, anthropology is needed, or anthropological imagination is needed. This is about humanity, about our struggles for, you know, climate change. We're talking about our species survival. White supremacy, violence, state violence, xenophobia, policies of immigration, anthropology, or anthropological ideas, the idea that we repoliticize the common struggle, seeing these struggles as connected. This is what anthropology can do right now. This is what we should be doing now. Rather than saying that we're relevant, just effing do it, you know, like, and actually engage these struggles. And, and, and NGOs are one vehicle for that engagement. But if they're the only vehicle for that engagement, then we need to rethink our praxis. What is, what is the dangerous element within NGOization of social justice movements? It's the logic of the project. So the deliverables, like having to package it for consumption and being sold on a market. So you can look at it as far as how many latrines you construct, how many school lunches you provide, how many, you know, whatever, beds you have at homeless mm -hmm. shelter, and how many people you got at a protest. How many tweets, how many times you got to Washington. You know, these are outputs, they're not outcomes. And if we anthropologists are also in this logic of, I'm having to post blog, woo-woo, I have 40 articles, I have, like, how many Twitter followers, if we were using the same metrics, you know, to use the phrase, you know, the, uh, the metrics, mm -hmm. uh, Vincent Adams, uh, or the, the logic of the audit culture, if we're trying to engage this world as it is, using this tool as NGOs, we are going to reproduce the very inequalities that we're trying to disrupt. If what we want as anthropology and anthropologists is to be a reformist and just be the more humane form of neocolonialism, then there's no problem with that. If we're trying to radicalize our thinking and look at where the world is now and support the actually existing movements that are transformative and, and seeking solidarity, then we need to think, rethink our practices. So my critical NGO studies is really forcing me to examine what anthropology is and what we should be doing at the moment and how do we engage this. Right, absolutely. Really important points there and I think you really highlight how the logic of the NGO can be taken on by people who are engaged in projects that they might see as radically different from NGOs but logics, metrics, ideas about how to measure success can seep through into different movements. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for this illuminating uh, and I think very vital conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. As it has been for me. That was Dr. Mark Schuler, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Nonprofit and NGO Studies at Northern Illinois University. He was talking us through the complexities of those ubiquitous features of the modern world, NGOs. You can learn more about Dr. Schuler's work on our website, colanth.org. The site is packed full of useful teaching and learning resources for this and for other Anthropod episodes, providing a great starting point for digging deeper into anthropological research. You've been listening to Anthrobytes, produced by the Society for Cultural Anthropology in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. This episode was made by me, Siobhan McGurk, with executive assistance from Dr. Jara Carrington. You can subscribe to Anthropop via iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud and you can follow the Society for Cultural Anthropology on Facebook and on Twitter.